morning to you all. Good to be with you. Always a privilege to speak on Sunday mornings. We are continuing today in the series that we started last week in the letter of James. James, to me, is a bit of a gut punch. Anyone? <laughs> it is full of wise teaching, to be sure. It is full of Jesus' teaching. I hear Jesus' words throughout all five chapters of that letter, but most of what I find in this little book I actually find quite confronting. It can be a challenging read. Uh, James calls to question the ways that we live as Christian people. He illuminates the discrepancies that are sometimes there between what we say we believe and then how we act in the world. And these aren't always easy things to hear. They can be challenging things to hear. Uh, but I think if we're really listening and we're open to hearing, uh, James can draw us into a deeper level of self-awareness and self-reflection and ultimately help us make strides in our life of discipleship. So that's my hope for us this morning and certainly as we continue throughout this, uh, this Lenten time, this Lenten season. So we're in James 2 this morning, verses 1 through 13. We're going to go ahead and just dive right in. Listen to these words. Try to listen with your whole self, your head and your heart, and see what you hear. James 2 goes like this. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to, who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no, no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I've been sitting with those 13 verses all week. I've been wrestling with those 13 verses all week, to be quite honest. I find this passage confronting. And I find it confronting, I think, because I find favoritism, that is this preferential treatment of certain kinds of people over others, to be incredibly present and pervasive in my life personally and in our world today. I have experienced it. I have been the one favored, the one raised up, the one given privileges, the one made special. 
and I've experienced it from the other side as well, the one who's been set aside, who's been lowered, who's been made to feel less than. I want you to just consider that for a moment as well. Can you think of times when you were shown preferential treatment for one reason or another? Or can you think of times when you were set aside, made to feel unworthy or judged? Give you just a moment. Use your imagination. Think about that for a second. James, he gives us a very vivid illustration to make his point about this particular sin, this sin of favoritism. He says, imagine, imagine that a person wearing gold rings and fine clothes, evidence of their wealth and their influence, perhaps, comes into your meeting. And then imagine that a poor person wearing dirty clothes, evidence of their material need or a lower place in society, imagine that they come into your meeting. He says, if you take notice of the wealthy one and say, please have a, have a seat here, we've reserved this space for you. And then you say to the one who is poor, you, you stay near the door, your, your voice isn't really needed here, your presence isn't desired. James says that if you do this, you make distinctions among yourselves. You have shown partiality and have therefore committed sin. You have made some among you more than and others less than. You have dishonored God's people, and you've done that. Why? Because some people have more money, have a higher place on the social ladder. It's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, when you really think about it. And it's certainly not the way of Jesus. This act of separating people, right, by class, by level of influence, by material wealth, and so forth, that act of assigning value and assigning worth to God's people, people based on a law of our own making, that's sin, according to James. I'm confronted by that. Any of you? You see, God doesn't see people with the same eyes that we see people. Jesus does not play favorites. If anything, what we see across te Jesus' teaching is that God was and is greatly for the poor. Look at verse 5 again with me. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Jesus' main message, his very coming into the world, was exceptional news for the outcast, for the downtrodden, for the marginalized, for the oppressed. We believe this core part of the gospel, and yet in this world still, the poor are treated as second- or third-rate citizens. Why? Why is it so difficult to treat these neighbors with the dignity they deserve as God's people? I can think of a few reasons, but I've been thinking about it all week. <clears throat> so let me ask you all, what do you think? Why do you think it's so easy to cast aside the poor any thoughts on that? That is, provided you agree with that statement, that it is easy to cast aside the poor. You might not think that, which might be interesting to hear too, but do you have any thoughts about that? Why do you think it's easy to set aside the material, materially poor? Okay, interesting. KB said, perception that they take more than they give. Okay, yeah, good. What else? Mark. 
okay, do you hear that, Mark? said a works-based belief. So I did this, I worked hard, therefore I've earned this, or that's, that's why I got to this place, as opposed to someone else. Is that tracking? Okay. Yeah, good. What else? Tyler. Oh, interesting. Right, that's good, Tyler. Yeah, we have a certain standard or, or way that we think it is right to act in society or be. Does that track with what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Right, right, right. Okay. DJ? Fear. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Thanks. So yeah. So DJ said fear, maybe fear of the unknown or fear of something we don't understand, and then disgust, which kind of feels like a little bit of what Tyler's saying, maybe to some extent. Okay. Anyone else? Thanks, DJ. Yeah, Mary C. Different values. Value different things. Right. <clears throat> sure, yep. Value different things. There you go, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Mary C. That's good, yeah. Yeah, one more. Kara, go for it. Guilt. Can you say more about that? Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks. DJ, you already shared. You can't keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> One more. What do you... There you go, okay. Right, okay. So there could be some hidden things that are happening that we're not even aware that we're doing. Okay. Very good. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, so there's a lot in that. There's some perception things. There's maybe even some systems things, ways that kind of uh, systems and structures are shaped around us that might keep us from each other and breed fear potentially. Certainly deep stories that we might carry about certain people or the ways certain people are. I was thinking this week, I was telling Katie this, that I was remembering a time when, I think I was in middle school, maybe I was in the eighth grade, and for a period of time there, my, myself and three friends, uh, one of our moms would drive us from our little rural community in the middle of Michigan uh, to this place called Carriage Town Ministries, which was in downtown Flint. Um, they ran a soup kitchen. And uh, this was maybe eight or ten miles away, geographically speaking, but it felt like a whole other world. You know, I hadn't had much 
exposure at that time to urban environments, and that was probably the first time that I experienced poverty uh, more up close, more kind of in my face. So we would go down once a month or so, maybe on a Saturday morning, and pretty much just stand behind a long stainless steel counter and have ladles, and we would just soup, uh, we would just ladle soup into bowls as men and women came through. And on one hand, I was thinking about that, that this week, and I was thinking how grateful I am to my mom and the moms of my friends who were willing to expose me at a relatively young age to quote-unquote difference, something that was, you know, people who certainly had a different life experience than I was living. Um, but as I was thinking about that this week, I was remembering some other details of those trips. I remember when we would get off the expressway, I can still see it very, very vividly, we'd get off the expressway, and we'd hit a stoplight almost instantly, which was sort of the signifier that we were in downtown Flint. And it was almost instinctual, my mom would lock the doors, right? And then I remember some of these lovely older folks who worked at that soup kitchen, they gave their time, and they gave their energy, and they would say things to us kids, like, you don't have to talk to anybody. You could just serve the soup. And I don't think there was a maliciousness in what was happening there. Um, so on one hand, while I can be grateful for the, that exposure to difference at such a young age, I can also see how those experiences shaped something in me, shaped how I uh, saw poor people or unhoused people, or even shaped what I thought about cities and who lived in urban environments. I think we carry these kinds of stories in us. Don't we? Maybe you can think of some examples in your life that have maybe contributed to, to your shaping around that, lived experience that have influenced how you see people, people especially who are different than you. But James is pretty clear. He says, when you make distinctions, you become judges with evil thoughts. And how you see another person impacts how you will treat them. Will you show them mercy? Will you show them compassion? Will you honor them? Or will you kick them to the curb, perhaps where you think they came from? So are there ways that you see this particular sin showing up in your own life? Ways that you've either shown or been shown favoritism based on wealth or gender or race or level of influence? Or ways that you've been the one who's been set aside, treated as less than because of wealth, gender, race, where you were born, what your parents did for a living, and so forth. I think it's important for us as a church to consider how we relate to the poor. In the Bible, the word poor in English can mean different things. We have six different Hebrew words that denote poor in the Old Testament and three different Greek words that denote poor in the New Testament. The use of that word in this passage in James seems to be referring to people who are lowly in social status, so the hungry, the unhoused, the politically powerless, people who have to depend on others' mercy and help to survive. How do we as individuals and as a church relate to those people, the materially poor, those in our city today who depend on others' mercy and help to survive? I think we need to look at that. We need to look at that, and we need to ask ourselves, when we see this preferential treatment or this favoritism or this judgment in our personal lives or in the world around us, we, we need to ask what we can do about it. What role, what part do we have to play in that? 
And so there are a few things that I think we can do about it. I don't think all is lost. I don't think it's hopeless. So a few things I think we can do. The first is prayer. And that's not intended to just be some kind of rote suggestion, the predictable thing pastors say, oh, just pray about it, just pray about it. That's not what I mean. But I am serious about prayer. And I believe that the power of prayer to actually change hearts and change eyes and change minds and change how we relate, certainly to God, but also to other people, uh, is true. I believe in that. We all struggle with this favoritism thing. We struggle to relate to certain people or certain kinds of people. We struggle to not place value or worth on certain people or certain kinds of people. We, we struggle to not put our own interests in front of others' interests. So when that comes up in us, when we become aware of it, we need to go in confession and ask for God to help us see that person or those people as God sees them. God, give me your eyes. God, give me your heart. We have to start somewhere, and I tend to think that prayer is actually a, a great place to start. I have learned, actually, DJ, you didn't know I was going to use you as an illustration today, but I have learned from watching DJ do this, actually. He really does pray for his enemies. He prays for people that he doesn't particularly get or like, people that he has judged or wronged, because he believes that it's his heart that needs to change, not necessarily the other person's. And it's been really helpful in my life and in my faith to, to learn and watch DJ does that, uh, as he does that. So the good news is if you, you know, get into some kind of tussle with DJ or if you irritate him, just know that you're probably going to have someone praying for you a few days later. <laughs> He's honest. <clears throat> So we pray, we pray, we confess, we ask God to change our eyes and to soften our hearts. We can start there. I think the second thing that can be very helpful for us when we're struggling with this particular sin of favoritism or ranking people, assigning value to human life according to how we see it, I think the other thing we can do is we can practice empathy. Now that word empathy is about the buzziest of buzzwords we have right now, I think, in the English language. Um, but it is important, I think it's critically important. Empathy is trying our best to walk in someone else's shoes. It is trying our best to take off our glasses, pick up theirs, and see the world through their eyes. And so when we're struggling to see people as God sees them, particularly people that society has placed on the margins or has lowered in some way, we do need to find ways to walk in their shoes if we're gonna change how we relate to them um, and how we treat them. James invites this look at verses 6 and 7 again with me real quick. He asks, Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? By asking these questions, I don't think that what James is giving us permission to do is to say, Well, blessed are the poor, the rich are the fools, treat them poorly. I don't think that's what he's doing, and I think we need to be cautious about simply flipping the script. We can do that. Make the oppressor the oppressed. And I'm not so sure that's justice as God sees it. What I think James is doing here is inviting us to remember the times we were treated poorly. This is a mechanism for building our empathetic muscles. Do you remember when you were stepped on, you were made low, you were cast out or walked over? 
Do you remember when you were judged unfairly, seen as something that you are not? Do you remember when your identity as God's beloved was tarnished or called into question in some way? Do you remember what that felt like to be treated so poorly? And sadly, no matter who we are, I think we do. We know what that feels like. Some of those stories, some of those ways that we've perhaps been treated might be very present and real for us still. Or some of those stories are a little bit deeper in our memory banks. Uh, we might even still need some healing for the way, from the ways that we've been treated or some wounding that's incurred. But I think if we can draw upon our own experiences, as painful as it might be to revisit them, I think if we can uh, recall times when we were treated as the poor one, it will help us empathize with those whom we are tempted to treat poorly. I think that's how empathy works. I think we have to uh, find ways to connect our stories to someone else's story. And I think that's how we also see new life coming from experiences that we thought would kill us. We have to find those connections in order to be able to see uh, the world as others might see it. Let me share one other thing, one other thing that I think we can do when it comes to battling this sin of favoritism. And here's where I want us to think about what we know and believe to be true about Jesus. Okay? Let me ask you a couple questions. Did Jesus sit high up on the hill, high up on the mountain, and speculate from up there about how the poor ought to be treated? He did not. Did Jesus stay tucked away in his room, writing blog posts all day about how the poor ought to be treated? I don't think so. Did Jesus say, well, one day I will get to those people, for today I have got some theology to sort. I've really got to first figure out what I think about what I believe before I do anything. I don't think so. What did he do? He was with the poor. He got low. He got around tables. He looked in eyes. He touched. He got close. And I think following in the way of Jesus, which I know this body of people is trying to do, following in the way of Jesus requires us to get low, to get proximate to come out of the safety of the ivory tower, to come out of the safety of our homes and our churches, and to be among the people, eye level, equal. I know I quote Frederick Beekner too much, so forgive me, but I love what he says about gathering around the table. Do we have that quote, Drew? He says, to eat any meal together is to meet at the level of our most basic need. It is hard to preserve your dignity with butter on your chin or to keep your distance when asking for the tomato ketchup. He's talking about the power of the Lord's Supper, this table, as the great leveler amongst God's people. But I think our dining room tables work just as well for that idea. It's hard to organize in a hierarchical fashion when sitting around the table, when the so-called host has ketchup on her face. You know, Power is redistributed at the table. So if we're going to win the battle against favoritism or racism or sexism or any of the other isms, we're going to have to get low. We're going to have to get around tables and get proximate to the people that we're most prone to set aside. This is not easy. This is not easy. It is much easier 
to stick with people who think like you, who dress like you, who worship like you, who vote like you, who are like you. But we will not grow. We will not grow in our discipleship to Christ if we stay there. We won't. We will not grow in our capacity to show mercy and compassion if we stay there. We don't change overnight. We know this. We know this. But the good news is that we don't go to battle against this sin or any sin by ourselves. Right? Remember the cross. Remember what it symbolizes. This is victory. Already won. Victory over the power of sin. We have to play our part in the battle, but we can do that confidently knowing that Christ has already been victorious in the battle. We believe that. We proclaim that. And so to do this work, we have to live our faith anchored, anchored to Jesus, remembering the grace and mercy that he has shown us so that we can also show that grace and mercy with those that we meet. And I think there are little steps, little steps that we can take each day to counteract this pervasiveness pervasiveness of sin that wants to keep us separate and divided. And I can say without a doubt, without a doubt, that I continue to struggle each day uh, to see and to love my neighbor as I love myself. And I know that there are certain kinds of people that I find it particularly difficult to muster compassion for. I know this. And I can also say without a doubt that the eyes and the heart of that kid who stood behind the soup counter 20 years ago have changed and have softened. We can change. Our hearts can change. Our eyes can change. Our minds can change. We can change. And our hope for change is in Christ who does in fact change things. See the whole New Testament. So if we believe that something as lowly and as simple as a cube of bread, something as basic as fermented grape juice, or Welch's grape juice in our case, if we believe that this has the power in all of its humbleness to become something for us that brings life, then we already have what we need, good imagination, faith. We already have what we need to believe and trust that our smallest actions and our simplest steps matter, that they can, in fact, cause a ripple that causes a wave that changes the world. They matter. I believe that. Those small stitches of repair, of forgiveness, of showing mercy that you lay every single day, they matter. So let's not allow our seemingly small steps to be healers and repairers and forgivers and mercy bringers to be set aside or undervalued either. There's something powerful and true and good to be found in the people and in the things that society tells us do not matter. They do. They matter. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to say a confession aloud with me, and then we're going to have a space of reflection and an invitation uh, to come take the supper. And after we say the confession, before you come to the communion table, I want to ask you to do a little bit of your own examination before God, with God. We're going to have a slide with a few questions on it. Uh, and so in just a minute, we'll have Drew throw that up there. And so, um, so we'll say the confession. We'll invite a space of reflection. We'll play some music. And then as you're ready, come forward and take the supper. But take it back to your seat. I'd like us to take it together this morning, okay? Uh, so would you stay seated this morning, actually? Or if you would like to take a posture um, on your knees or any other way that helps you get into a confessing posture, would you say these words aloud with me?
Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.